This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today we're going to be tackling a really fun topic that I'm excited to get into. We're actually finishing and wrapping up our series, Wind and Fire, this morning. We've been in this series for the past nine weeks. The Lord kind of changed our plans at the beginning of the fall, and we went in a different direction than I had originally intended, but I really felt like I had heard from the Holy Spirit and moving uh, our church into this series, and it's been a, a blessing. How many of you have enjoyed Wind and Fire and just some of the tough topics that we've tackled? Well, today we're going to tackle one more tough topic, and we're going to be talking about women in ministry or women in leadership. The title of my message today is Spirit-Empowered Women, Spirit-Empowered Women, and I'm excited about this because this is the first time that we've ever been able to publicly teach on what we believe about what God says and what God's Word has to say about women in the church. So ladies, this is going to be your day. Come on, somebody. But men, this is for you too. This is for all of us today. And so I'm excited. And so we've been looking at all the different ways in which God has been moving throughout the book of Acts and the lives of the disciples, the early apostles, those that were sent out and commissioned by Jesus himself to make disciples of all nations. And uh, it's been an interesting journey so far. We've been actually through about 15 chapters of the book of Acts. Today we're going to jump around a little bit. So if you have your Bible, you brought it on a good day. And if you need one, you can always go grab one from the Connect Center, or it should be on the screen for you as well. But before we get into the Word, let's pray. Let's focus our hearts to hear from God today. Father, we thank you for your Word. Your Word is life. Your Word is a lamp unto our feet. It guides our path. It illuminates the dark places of our souls. It brings truth and clarity and conviction It does all of the life-giving things that you've intended for it to do. So I pray that now you would shut out all the distractions, Lord, that we'd be able to silence our cell phones and our notifications, and that the only notification that we would pay attention to is yours, Holy Spirit. So we pray for that now in the name of Jesus, and all God's people said amen. I want to start with a couple of disclaimers. I was telling our team earlier this morning that Oftentimes, as a preacher, I love to preach and I love to get fired up. Today, I'm going to stick a little bit closer to my notes and I'm going to teach because I realize there's some foundation that needs to be set in establishing some of what I'm going to say. And for us as pastors, a lot of times we want to move faster than people are ready for or even in the ability to receive from. And I don't want to do that today. I want to go really slowly and I don't want to assume anything, and I don't want to take anything for granted. So if you're a guest today, you've come on a good day. You've come on an interesting day, maybe a little bit of an abnormal day, but you came on a good day because you're going to hear from the Lord, you're going to hear from the Word of God. So I want to start with a couple disclaimers before we kind of get into the message today. And I I recognize that for a lot of people, this is going to be maybe a sensitive subject. Maybe you grew up in the church, or you grew up in in a faith tradition that uh, did not empower women or did not see a place for women uh, in, in terms of leadership or in terms of pastoring. Uh, regardless of what faith tradition you come from today, I want to tell you that this is a safe place. Courageous Church is a safe place. We're a non-denominational church, but we have people that have come from all sorts of different denominational backgrounds. How many of you would raise your hands and say, I came from kind of a denominational background, Pastor Jay? How many would say, I came from a non-traditional, non-denominational background? All right. How many of you would say, I came from a charismatic or Pentecostal background? All right. So we have all different mixes in the room. If you could turn and and see all the hands went up, it's all of us, right? We're, We're a beautiful mixture of all sorts of different backgrounds and histories. But that said, I want to address this issue and say first and foremost, that this does not need to divide us. This does not need to divide us. And if you're someone who would consider yourself contentious, I want to encourage you to open your heart to maybe hear and receive from God some different perspective today. Uh, That's really what I want for us as a church. Amen? I want us to be a people that continue to grow and that we continue to embrace what God has for us and that we don't settle for status quo. Or just because maybe we always saw something a certain way that we're not open to hearing from God in a new way. Amen? So we're not going to shy away from things that are difficult just because they're difficult. We're going to address them head on. I want to make another disclaimer. 
This is a church that believes that a big part of our calling is to both equip and empower people. And that includes both men and women. Can I say it again? That includes both men and women. So you are here today because first and foremost, hopefully you, you felt called and you felt convicted to come and you felt drawn and, and you felt welcome and you felt like this would be a safe place for you to grow and a safe place for you to be led and taught and instructed in the ways of the Lord. But most of all, you're here today to be equipped and empowered. And our heart as leaders and as pastors in this church is to do that, is to make sure that you are operating at your full potential because you have a ministry that God has assigned uniquely to you in the body of Christ. Do we believe that today, church? And you have gifts that were uniquely given to you. Do you believe that today? And you have a calling from the Lord that is not from man, but from God himself. And that calling is irrevocable, meaning that he didn't give it to you and he's not gonna take it away. So because you have gifts and callings that are not changing, God wants you to be equipped and empowered in those things. And maybe you're new to following Jesus, and maybe this is going to be new for, for some of you today. And maybe you're just starting, or maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, and you, you feel stuck in your journey. Well, I want to say this. God's desire and his heartbeat for you and for me, for all of us, is to grow. This church wants this place to be a place where you can grow. Last week I said flourish. God wants you to flourish in your faith. He wants you to flourish in your marriage. He wants you to flourish in your parenting. How many could use a little extra grace with your, your kids this holiday season? Yeah, <laughs> myself included. He wants you to flourish and grow in every capacity. So, as a disclaimer, this is a church that believes empowering both men and women, and we believe that both men and women together represent the full image of God in the earth. We believe that not only do they represent the full image of God in the earth, but they, that they are both, men and women, are called to co-reign and rule together with Christ in his kingdom that is both now and not yet. Meaning, a big part of how we live now is in preparation for how we will live then when Jesus returns and establishes his earthly kingdom from Mount Zion. We've been talking a lot about that over the last few weeks. And you know what this picture is going to look like? It's going to look like redeemed, restored, and reconciled men and women of God coming together from every nation, tribe, and tongue to worship and declare the rule of Christ throughout the earth. It's going to be beautiful. And which means that we are called to live now in preparation for what is to come. A big part of how we do kingdom life, what we call kingdom life, or the way of Jesus now, is living out the future reality of what is to come in the here and now. So when Jesus showed up on the scene, he came announcing and inaugurating the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? It's the rule and reign of God. It's the fact that what God is going to do in, in making all things new has broken into the present tense in Christ Jesus in the ministry and person of Jesus and has now be, been made available to us in advance of its greater consummation to come. It's like the appetizer to the main course. You and I are living in the appetizer of the main course of the eschaton or the end times when Jesus will return and restore all things to the way that they were intended to be. It's going to be a beautiful reality. I'm not going to talk on that too much, but I want to say this, that because of that future reality, God has now invited you and I, the invitation for us as disciples and believers in Jesus to live the kingdom life here and now. And that kingdom life includes both men and women fully reconciled and restored, co-reigning and ruling with Christ Jesus. That's the picture. And it's against this backdrop that we believe God therefore empowers both men and women to do this, to reign as co-heirs with Christ. That's the language of the New Testament, that you and I are, have been made co-heirs, inheritors of a greater promise and a greater reality in Christ. A reality that should look more like heaven and less like earth. You and I are co-regents and co-heirs with Christ, colonizing earth with heaven, if I could say it that way. Here's what Paul says about it in Romans 5, verse 17. He says, For if because of one man's trespass, 
death reigned through that one man, meaning Adam, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life? I want you to underline that in your Bibles or swipe that on your smartphones. How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, how many are thankful for grace? Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor that God has given you because of Jesus. And the free gift of righteousness, how many are thankful that you have been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? You have a new position and a new peace with God because of Jesus. This all happens through the one man, Jesus. Did you catch that? God wants you and I to reign in life, not just in the life to come, but in the life that now is, through the one man, Jesus Christ. Despite Adam's sin, despite Eve's sin, despite them messing it all up for us in the garden, come on, some people might call that original sin or the fall, Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly, and that promise is for every man and every woman, amen? So it's really important that we, we start with this because if we don't understand God's original intent for man and woman, then we won't understand his intent for man and woman in light of the future coming kingdom. It's really important that we start with the garden because in the garden, we, we see God doing what? We see God creating both men and women, women as full representatives of the image of God in the earth. And what does he do? He breathes on them and he gives them a commission to be fruitful, to multiply, and to subdue the earth. I'll say it again, to be fruitful, to multiply, and subdue the earth. So if you have children, praise God, you're multiplying. <laughs> and if you're single, that's okay, because you still get to be spiritual fathers and mothers to men and women in Christ Jesus. So the, the opportunity for you to multiply is still the same. And to not only multiply, but to, to subdue or to have dominion over the earth. Let's read it together. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. Some people see in that plurality the trinity. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, verse 27. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Can I say it again? And God blessed them. God's image is fully blessed when both men and women represent it. Got a little quiet in the room. Do we believe that? Do we believe that the blessed image of God includes both men and women? Because if we don't, then nothing I say from this point forward is gonna matter to you, okay? So I hope you believe that. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created, God blessed, both men and women, to partner with him, to co-reign with him, and exercising dominion over the earth. When God created everything, it wasn't his desire for him to personally have to do everything for us. It wasn't his desire for, for man and woman to step back and to just watch God create and God rule. No, he invited them into that with him. And he said, I want you to create. I want you to multiply. I want you to rule. I want you to have dominion. I want you to exercise authority. That's really important for us to hear. So God creates, God blesses, and he's, he gives men and, and women this, this commission. Some people consider this the original commission before the Great Commission. The original commission, which was to exercise co-heir, co-regent dominion over the earth not over each other. And here's the problem. Sin enters the picture in Genesis chapter three. The serpent comes into the garden that man and woman were called to watch over, to literally pastor, which is what a shepherd does. And in the Hebrew, and I don't have time to get into this today, and I wish I did, but I already have so many scriptures that I want to get through. But in the original Hebrew, the command to guard or to have dominion means to watch over, to protect. What was the problem? Adam did not protect the garden. 
Eve did not protect the garden. And in comes slithering the serpent, the evil one, Satan is his name, to deceive and to sow discord and to question what God had said. Because they began to, to leave the door open rather than to shut the door and do what God had created them to do. And so in comes the serpent and he starts to speak lies and he starts to twist God's word. He does all sorts of things, right? But this wasn't God's original intent for Adam and Eve. They were called to co-reign and rule over the Garden of Eden together, to watch over it, to steward it, to subdue it. This is really important for us to understand because once sin enters the picture, what do we have? We have men now dominating women and we have women now trying to dominate men. When in reality, that was never God's intent from the start. It was never part of God's original plan, which brings us to the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, go there. And we see in the book of Acts this beautiful picture of God beginning to restore this Edenic vision, this original vision of Eden, this original plan in the life of his followers, the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, you and I. And here it is. We see this beautiful picture of Jesus coming to his church, his bride that he loves, that he gave his life for post-resurrection. And he's about to do something very unique and very wonderful in their life. John chapter 20, verse 16. Here's what it says. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so now I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So we know from this, this commission, this is the first place we see it, where Jesus comes after the cross in his resurrected state and he breathes on the men and the women, disciples. And he says, now I want you to go and I want you to make disciples of all nations, and I want you to baptize people, and I want you to forgive people, and if you do these things, people will experience these things. And so we see this commission to do this. We see men and women together even just a few days later at Pentecost, when the full manifestation of wind and fire rests upon their life. Acts chapter one now, verses 12 through 14. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, and Judas, the son of James. And all of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with all the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So the spirit comes and rests on the disciples, including all the men and women that were there in the upper room. And we know that there was about 120 in number. Peter stands up quoting from Joel, and here's what he has to say. Acts chapter two now, verse 17 through 18. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Say all flesh. Did he say on just the men? No, he said on all and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Did he say just your sons? No. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, did he say just the male servants? No. On both, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. What happens directly after the Holy Spirit does this? The church explodes. The church explodes from 120 to 3,000 to 5,000 within just a few days. 
We see exponential growth. What do we see? We see multiplication. We see them beginning to live out the original commission to be fruitful and to multiply. To subdue the earth with what? Now the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom that had come among them. The spirit that had come upon them. The power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ for all, both Jew and Gentile. Amen? Acts 18. And this brings us to where we are today. And this is we're not going to have time to get through all the other chapters in Acts, but most of it's narrative. But Acts 18 is a very interesting passage of Scripture as it pertains to this message today, I think. So go there with me. Acts 18, beginning in verse 1. It says this, And after this, now we know that the Spirit had been moving, disciples had been led and uh, baptized, the church is exploding in growth, churches are popping up all throughout Turkey and Syria, all throughout Jerusalem and Samaria, even all the way up into Greece. Beautiful things are happening now in the life in the church. And here we are with Paul, one of the original persecutors of the church that God has now changed into becoming one of the great uh, missionaries of the church. And here's what it says. After this, Paul, he left Athens and he went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, who was the emperor at the time, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Can I just pause for one moment and as an aside say that Jew hatred and the expulsion of Jews has been going on for a very long time, okay? So when we see what's going on in the world today, it's not new. It was happening then. Already, within the first century, there was a Roman emperor who was kicking out all of the Jews, which is astounding to me. And so Paul leaves Athens, he comes to Corinth, and he finds there Priscilla and Aquila, two Jewish Italians. <laughs> and they had been commanded to leave Rome, and so they come to Corinth, and it, the Bible says here that he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade there both Jews and Greeks. And so here Paul leaves Athens, he goes to Corinth, he meets two Jewish refugees from Rome named Priscilla, who was the woman, and Aquila, the man. And as Jews, they were commanded to leave. So by trade, they're making tents, they're doing all that they can to survive as artisans who work with their hands. They were tent makers like Paul was, is what the Bible tells us here. And they end up assisting him and hosting him during his stay. Paul ends up staying with them for 18 months. We spent 18 months in South Jordan at a little building doing Sunday night church. And so here they are in Corinth for 18 months. And afterwards, they leave Corinth to go to Ephesus, which is now in modern day Turkey. And Paul would go with them. And here's what it says now going down to verse 18. And after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Kencre, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews there. Verse 20, and when they had asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And so he set sail from Ephesus. Now, why am I spending time pointing this out? Well, what's the result of Paul leaving Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. The result is that they both remain there planting a church together from their own home. <laughs> Here we have the very first church planting couple in the New Testament. This is pretty cool. I think it's cool. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, Paul would actually send greetings to them. As such, here's what it says. The churches here in the province of Asia send greetings in the Lord. Let's put up there if we have it, 1 Corinthians 16, 19. They send their greetings in the Lord, as do Aquila and Priscilla and all the others who gather in their home for church meetings. So here, Aquila and Priscilla were tent makers, artisans who had a church who planted a church in their home and were hosting people there. Paul would actually later refer to them as co-workers in his ministry, Romans 16, verse three. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. Like Priscilla and Aquila, Canis and I came to Salt Lake City 
as missionaries sent by an apostolic network to plant a church here. And we did so as partners and co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus, amen? So I like this passage because it provides for us a template and a model of what we see in the early church, which is important. As Christians who now are a couple thousand years removed from what God was doing with his people, both men and women, I think it's important for us sometimes to wind the clock back and look at what God was doing in the scriptures. What we see in hundreds of years of dark ages and medieval ages and the rise of the Catholic church and an all-male papacy or however you want to say it, we see women begin to be degraded and begin to put down, but that's not actually what we see in the early church. It's really important for us to understand this. Eventually, a Jewish believer named Apollos comes to Ephesus, and Priscilla and Aquila both teach him and train him more fully in the way of Jesus. Let's go there now, Acts 18, verse 24 through 26. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. The reason I believe Luke points out the fact that he's from Alexandria is because Alexandria was a very educated place. It, it was full of philosophy and education. People that went there tended to be more wealthy, they're very affluent. And so Apollos, who is a Jewish man, comes from Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, it says, competent in the scriptures. Got to remember, they didn't have a New Testament Bible at this point. What scriptures did they have? It was all the Old Testament, okay? So when Paul talks about the scriptures and the word of God and all these things, it was Old Testament. That's why we don't unhitch from it. We talked about that last week. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew of the baptism of John. He didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, the husband and wife team, the missionary church planning team, heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. <laughs> what do we see happening here? We see a spirit-empowered woman and man of God correcting another believer in their care who has now come into their fellowship. And as an aside, if Pastor Canis or I ever have to pull you aside to correct you, don't resist, don't rebel. <laughs> Allow us to bring you into the way of God more fully, amen? Give us a reason to do so with great joy. <laughs> and if we have to do this, it's, it's because we love you. It's because we love you. Come on, somebody. And you men in the church, if, if, if Candace is asked by the Holy Spirit or by me to do this, come on, don't resist, don't rebel, don't pull back, and especially don't do this because she's a woman. Can I get an amen? All right. As another interesting aside, some scholars actually believe that it was Priscilla who was the silent author of the book of Hebrews because of its striking similarity to Paul's teachings who she had spent considerable time with. Remember, they were together for over 18 months in Corinth. It's interesting that this is also the only book in the New Testament whose author we do not know. Interesting thought. But back to the book of Acts. What happens next? Under Priscilla and Aquila's pastoral care, the church in Ephesus explodes in growth. And of course, anytime there's growth in the church, how many of you guys know there's gonna be some problems? People that go, man, I, I, I hope the church grows, and, and we do. We want the church to grow, but don't be surprised when problems erupt. Because anytime you have more people, you're gonna have more problems, right? <laughs> more money, more problems, more people, more problems. Come on, somebody. So there's these problems that begin to take place, and years later, around the mid-60s, these false teachers begin to move into the church. And this happens right here at Ephesus, where Priscilla and Aquila are. And they begin to, to move in the church and, they, and begin to actually teach things that are against or contrary to what God has instructed them in. So Paul appoints Timothy to now come alongside Priscilla and Aquila, who are still there in Ephesus, to help them oversee the church there. This is the backdrop for now the letter that Paul is going to write Timothy from prison later on in his ministry. First Timothy chapter 1 now. Verse three through seven, Paul writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila, trying to help them figure out what's going wrong because of all these false teachers. Verse three, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach. Time out. Underline that in your Bible. 
highlight that. Because if you gloss over that, what he says next is not going to make much sense to you. Or you're going to read it out of context, which is what most Christians do with this particular passage of Scripture. He says, remain there in Ephesus with Priscilla, with Aquila, with the church, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, there it is again, certain persons, we don't know exactly who they are, but there are certain persons by swerving from these things have actually wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So the implication here is that they are not actually people who know what they're talking about. They don't know the law, which could be a reference to them being Gentiles, we're not entirely sure, but they don't know the scriptures. They don't know what God's word has to say. And so they've come in with false teaching and false doctrine. And in case you're wondering, we know that Paul's not referring to Priscilla or Aquila here as these certain persons, because by the time of his writing his second letter to Timothy, he is still sending his greetings to them warmly. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19, he says, Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila and the whole household of Anisiphorus. FYI, Paul would not be greeting them warmly if they were the ones causing people into error or teaching falsely, okay? This is important. So this problem has erupted within the church, which is why Paul then gives Timothy some practical instructions on how to address this problem in this particular church. So there's some context here, and there's some situation here regarding certain persons teaching falsely. It's against this backdrop that we now read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, the problematic scripture that everybody points to. He says this, let a woman or a wife, it could be translated either way, learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman or a wife to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, how do we reconcile Paul saying this universally if just a few years earlier, Priscilla was already teaching Apollos and correcting him and exercising her authority. Doesn't add up. Was Paul pivoting or changing his stance? I sincerely doubt it. <laughs> Especially if we look at all the evidence of all the women already teaching and prophesying from within the church from the start of Acts onward. So how do we reconcile the fact that women were encouraged to not remain silent, but to prophesy in the church with this particular passage? In my opinion, it just may happen to be that there were certain persons that needed to be quiet and learn who didn't know what they were talking about. Not all persons for all time. That's really important for us to understand that. There must be a reason or a group of certain persons that were teaching the wrong things and being unruly. We've already seen from 1 Timothy 1.3, that's exactly who Paul is addressing here. Additionally, we know from history that there was this, this cult of Artemis. Artemis was the, the goddess that was worshipped more than any other goddess in the culture of the Greeks at, at this time. In fact, they were building statues to her and there was a pagan cult that went around worshiping her and actually all the men were profiting from this because they were making little um, metal idols and little gold and silver idols to Artemis. And earlier in Acts, the disciples come in and they cast this demon out of this girl who was, was caught up in this witchcraft and she was a practicing witch of Artemis. And so all the men are really pissed off at Paul and they're gonna like stone him because he's now cost them their profit. You guys gotta read the story, it's pretty phenomenal. So he, he drives all these demons, you think they'd be happy they're not because now they're gonna lose money over it. And this is the same cult that had the most power in all of Ephesus. In fact, this temple that they created was considered one of the wonders of the world at the time. And it was a place where you could go and you could offer up your sacrifices upon the altar of Artemis. And so they're confronting this demonic 
witchcraft that's now trying to come into the church through certain persons that are not teaching the scriptures, not teaching doctrine, not teaching the gospel, but that are teaching the teachings or philosophies of Artemis. And it's from this place that now Paul is having to set some order. He's like, I gotta, I gotta correct some things that are going wrong here with the ship. These false teachers and unruly women that have now come in out of this cult who are starting to present themselves and presume authority over men and over the teachers and over Priscilla and over Aquila and even over Timothy in a way that's unruly, distracting, and disruptive. And so here's what Paul's trying to do as the apostle. He's trying to set some order. This is really important. It's from this that Paul starts to lay out some kind of basic character qualifications for what it means to lead within the church. And he uses two terms that we're gonna unpack here, overseer and deacon. Overseer is the Greek word episkope, and deacon is the Greek word diakonos. First Timothy chapter three now, verses one through three and verses eight through 12. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, the word office is actually not present in the Greek, so it should be read. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Verse eight, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. The first issue at hand is this, are these terms, overseer and deacon, gender-specific or are they gender neutral terms? From a simple reading of the text, we would likely assume that they are gender specific. However, uh, the Greek does not actually use gender specific language here. It uses gender neutral language. Our English Bibles uses gender specific language. When verse one says, if anyone desires to be an overseer, the Greek phrase, if anyone used here is gender neutral. It's not actually masculine. The following word, he, is not actually in the text. Believe it or not, there's actually no other male pronouns used on this, what's called the virtue list here. The Greek word for overseer, episcope, is actually a feminine noun. And it means a person that investigates and watches over with gracious care. What's the imagery of an overseer? It's the one that Jesus provides for us in Luke chapter 13, verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. The image of an overseer is as a mother hen who gathers her chicks and watches over them carefully. Still, if we regard these statements about overseers and deacons to be male-specific, how do we reconcile them with what Paul says in Romans 16, verse 1? He says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon, a diakonos of the church. Wait a second, I thought from verse 12, deacons had to be the husband of one wife. What gives Paul? Is Paul contradicting himself here with Phoebe? Who's obviously female, by the way? No. Not if we understand the Greek language being employed. Okay, second issue at hand is this. Does the phrase husband of one wife mean an overseer must be married or does it mean that an overseer must be faithful to their spouse? In other words, is the qualification about having to be married or is the qualification about fidelity within one's marriage? If it's about having to be married, then Paul and Timothy, who are both unmarried, would not be eligible to be overseers in the church. 1 Corinthians 7, 8, Paul reminds us to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single just as I am. So how could Paul be an overseer in his own church if he's single, if he's not married? Number two, widows and widowers would not be eligible to be overseers over the church. Number three, faithful single people would not be eligible to be overseers over the church. Number four, those who are married and don't have children yet or are unable to have children because of pregnancy problems would also not be eligible to be overseers. Wow, that sounds like a lot of people wouldn't be eligible. But if it's actually about marital fidelity or being faithful to one spouse, then the issue is that they couldn't have more than one partner. And because they're in a Greek and Roman culture that often practiced polygamy and polyamory, 
People would hook up with multiple partners, concubines, mistresses. They would sleep with their servants and their slaves. It's not far-fetched to believe that there was actually this problem happening within the church. And in fact, it does happen within church because we see it later erupt at Corinth. Number two, then if faithfulness to one's spouse is the requirement, then perhaps what Paul is getting at is a character issue, not a gender one. Which means that if you're cheating on your spouse and you're not faithful, you don't get to lead God's church. That's why when people get into sexual immorality and cheat or adultery or whatever it is, they no longer qualify to lead God's people. Why? Because in leading God's people as a man or as a woman, as husband and wife, as one faithful to one spouse, you are representing God himself as a faithful husband to his bride, the church, which is why God takes it so seriously. How can we represent God's faithfulness to us in covenant if we ourselves as leaders don't honor covenant? That's what he's trying to say here. Therefore, we believe the point of this passage is actually about character, not gender. Now, from the same posture of Paul correcting false teachers here, Paul later gives some instructions on how to address elders. This is the term presbuteros. It's fun to say, say it with me. Presbuteros. Presbuteros. This is actually where he does use some gendered language. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1-2. through two. Rebuke not an elder, presbuteros, but exhort him as a father, a pater. The younger men as brethren, adelphos. Verse 2. Rebuke not the elder women, presbuteros, but treat them as mothers, meter, and the younger as sisters, adelphi, in all purity. Verse 17. Let the elders, presbuteros, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in what? Preaching and teaching. Wait a second. I thought women couldn't teach. I thought they had to be silent. Well, here we see an example of both the men and the women as elders laboring in preaching and teaching. Why would elders who are simply just older people, if that's the view you take, who labor in preaching and teaching be worthy of double honor if they weren't actually leading the church? That's my question. The word used here for those that rule is the word proestime, which means to be set over, to govern, to protect, and to care for. This is literally what pastors and leaders and elders in the church are called to do. To be set over, to govern, to protect, and to care for the flock. This kind of elder role or function would be consistent with what Priscilla and Aquila both did in their church together under Paul's apostolic authority as empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, some people like to distinguish between verse one and verse 17. Some say Paul's referencing two different groups of people here. But if we take the whole context of the passage into account, this view seems actually unlikely, especially since he uses the same exact word for both men and women elders, and he could have used different words here if he wanted to. Which begs another question, are elders and overseers different in role and function? Well, some traditions, some faith traditions and denominations conflate these terms. They, they put them together and they use them interchangeably, elder or overseer. Even though these terms are actually different words in the Greek and they have different meanings. Overseer, as I said, is the word episcope, and elder is the word presbyteros. Some actually go a step further and conflate elder and overseer and pastor together, even though those are all three different words as well with different meanings. Episcope, presbyteros, and poimen for pastor, meaning shepherd, which is part of the problem today. Because within the church, we have one junk drawer term that we like to use, and we call it pastor. So rather than affirm apostles, evangelists, prophets, elders, overseers, shepherds, we just call them all pastor. And those mean different things to different people. What I think we need to do is be biblical and reclaim some of our understanding of the text and be more nuanced and careful with what these things mean and how we go about using them. The reason why some churches don't wanna use the term prophet or apostle is because they actually don't believe that God still appoints prophets and apostles. That's the real issue. So to my brothers and sisters who have a different view of this than me, I would say, be consistent with your view. If you are going to view certain scriptures a certain way, don't cherry pick 
and leave out the apostles and the prophets and those for whom you may be uncomfortable. If you're going to be faithful to all the scripture, be faithful to all of it. Amen? Earlier in his letter, the same church. Now, this is Paul writing to the Ephesians. It's the same church, you guys, in Ephesus. Here's what Paul has to say about leaders or shepherds, now pastors. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers, Ephesians chapter four, verse 11, okay? Nowhere on this list does Paul give any gender-specific requirement for pastors or teachers. Some also like to conflate pastor and teacher together. Nowhere on this list does he give any gender-specific requirements for any of these other gifts. Remember, these aren't offices. These are gifts. Christ gave the church gifts. What is the gift? Apostles, evangelists, prophets, teachers, pastors, overseers, elders, deacons. They all have different functions according to different giftings that God himself has appointed for the health and maturity of the body of Christ. That's ultimately what he wants for our lives. Nowhere on this list does he say that men or women can't be involved. Okay, this is important. In fact, in Romans chapter 16, verse seven, Paul says this, greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who were in prison with me. They are highly and respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ Jesus before I did. Junia is a woman who is highly respected among the apostles, who was also a follower of Christ before Paul. Wait a second, can a woman be an apostle, but not an overseer or an elder or a pastor? Seems unlikely, and honestly, guys, it seems confusing. Did Paul's view on gender somehow change or evolve? There's actually no major historical or biblical evidence to believe that it did. So let's answer the questions more plainly. Can women be overseers, deacons, elders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, or teachers? We believe the answer is yes. For the following reasons. Number one, because of what we see right here in Scripture. This models what we see in the book of Acts. It models the apostles' approach and planting churches and missionaries being sent and couples often working together and new leaders being raised up, discipled, corrected, and led by both men and women. Number two, because context still matters. We see different leadership styles occur in different places like Jerusalem, which had a whole different understanding of how they were going to lead their church given their culture and customs. We see different leadership issues arise in places like Corinth or Ephesus or Athens or even Galatia. And all of these different issues and contexts require different cultural sensitivities and approaches. This is important to understand. If Candace and I were to move to Iran today and plant a church, I guarantee you Candace would dress differently. Do you agree with that assertion? Yes. Ironically, what you find in Iran today are women leading churches. Somebody better tell the men to get, get over there and correct them because they're doing it wrong. Come on, somebody. Jesus is raising up courageous women all over the planet in places like China, in places like South Korea, where at one point in time, I think it was the largest church on earth, David Yongi Cho's church in South Korea, in Seoul, South Korea, led by women in houses leading prayer meetings 24-7. Some of the most powerful churches on, to, on the planet today are not led by men, but by women. Interestingly enough, we see this not only in Turkey, we see it in India now in places where Hindus and Muslims are coming to Christ by the boatloads. You guys, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. We see it in places like Nigeria, where I've been personally. Now, I can tell you, in Nigeria, they do things a little differently. If you think standing for 30 minutes of worship's long, try three hours, because their services are like six to eight hours. You wanna know why? Because both the men and women, with their children on their backs, walk miles upon miles to get to church that day because it's that much of a priority for them. Just saying. We've got it easy here in the West, you guys. Number three, another reason why we think the answer to these, these questions is yes. Because God doesn't want to sideline 50% of the body of Christ. Come on. 
Imagine all, what, how much further along we could be in fulfilling the Great Commission if both men and women got off the sidelines of their faith and got engaged in the game. Could you imagine with me what that would look like? Number four, because leadership still matters. Leadership, oversight, governance, that's actually healthy and necessary, is important to the life and vitality of the church because God's desire for the local church is to grow and to be healthy. God wants that for our lives. Therefore, he places over churches, leaders to govern it, to rule well, to shepherd and to care for the flock. In the same way, we, both Candace and I, submit to apostolic overseers and other leaders and other advisors for accountability and care. We also remain in fellowship with other associations and networks that have a similar spiritual DNA. That's important for us. And number five, because unity still matters. Some might read these passages and come to different conclusions regarding how they want to govern their church or structure it. And we don't need to speak bad about them. Come on, somebody. We're not here to come against the work of God as is expressed in different ways and forms. We do, however, need to seek unity above all things. And we do that. You guys seen ways in which we've done that. Even last Sunday, we were able to come together with all different churches that come from different faith traditions than us, that have different views than us. Because we believe the unity of the church is more important than our personal pride and preferences. Amen? Therefore, we believe each local church, and wrapping this up, is left to determine its own structure and leadership as best that it can with help from outside apostolic voices and leaders. And we see this based on four things, what I'm going to call the four C's of leadership today. Number one, calling. Did God actually call you and appoint you to lead? And if so, who vouches for this? We've got a lot of armchair theologians and TikTok theologians out there who feel that they've been entitled to express their opinion about a whole host of things and no one's actually appointed them to or called them to. So who vouches for this in your life and in mine? Number two, competency. Do you have the, the demonstrable gifts and skills to lead? Have you worked to be tested and approved? Number three, character. Do you have the integrity to lead? Are you a person of good moral character? Number four, chemistry. Do you work well with others? Are you a team player or are you contentious? The big question is, do you submit to the leadership of this church? It's always comical to me when people come from another church and they start talking to me about their, their old church and how we used to do it this way and how pastor used to do it this way. And I, I look at them kindly and warmly in the face and say, I'm not your old church and I'm not your old pastor. So if you're gonna come and you're gonna align with this church, with what we believe, what we believe God has called us and tasked us to do, the question for you is, do you submit to the leadership of this church? At the end of the day, the Bible's very clear that God commands a blessing where both men and women dwell together in unity, laying down their lives for each other. And this is what we see in Jesus. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 through 28 says, but Jesus called to him and called to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord their authority over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, your deacon. <laughs> Turn to somebody and say, I wanna be your deacon. Come on now. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. The word is doulos. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Leadership at the end of the day is not about exercising authority over. It's about service. It's about serving other people and self-sacrificing love, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman, young or old, which means that we need to grow up into this kind of love, church. We need to embody this kind of love and service, which means that Jesus is the model, not corporations, not CEOs, and not presidents. Part of our problem in the West is that we, we model the church after what we see in businesses and in corporations rather than what we see here with Jesus and his followers in the book of Acts. First Peter, building off of this theme of Jesus being the model for the way in which we serve each other in self-sacrificing love, says this, therefore put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
that by it, verse two, you may grow up into salvation, verse four, as you come to him, who? Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house through Jesus Christ. Verse six, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. In closing, how are we as men and women created in the image of God, restored, reconciled, renewed, and saved, called to lead? We are called to lead as those who lay their lives down upon a chief, chosen, and precious cornerstone who laid his life down for us. I want to illustrate what this looks like. Can I get Jonathan? Can I get Tim? Can I get Matt? Can I get Andrew? Ladies, I'd call you up too but I'm about to do something that's gonna require a, a particular physicality that may not be appropriate for what you're wearing today. So for you men here, you represent your wives equally, obviously. <laughs> Jesus is the cornerstone, and if I could just make a little aisle here, there we go. Jesus is the cornerstone at the edge of the foundation in the spiritual house of his church that he's building with people like you and me, what he calls living stones. And he's stacking us stone upon stone, brick upon brick. But we're not just out doing our own thing. We're being laid upon the cornerstone himself. So how does Pastor Jason and Candace lead Courageous Church? By following the example of Jesus who laid down his life for them. Men, this is what you do for your wives. You lay down your life for your wives as Christ loved the church. And then what happens is he takes a Priscilla and Aquila like Jason and Candace. He plants them upon the cornerstone, the rock of salvation, Jesus himself, in a place like Salt Lake City. Not true Zion. Come on, false Zion. And then he calls other people to come along and to do the same, to lay their lives down upon them. Jonathan, come on, get on me. Come lay yourself down on me. Oh! Oh my God, <laughs> maybe this wasn't a good idea after all. <laughs> and so now you have a couple who've laid their lives down. Ladies, you can see why now I didn't have you do this. And now Jonathan and Elizabeth have come and they've laid their lives down to do what? To serve God's people who are doing what? Who are also coming to lay their lives down. Tim, you, you and Jen now come lay your lives down on the cornerstone Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> and now others like Matt, come along. Come on, Matt, get over here. Bless God, we love you, Matt. Thank God you're skinny. Oh my God. Now he's laid down. Okay, Andrew, do I dare? Andrew and Emily, come along. And now they're laying their lives down. I'd ask Phil to come, but Phil's going to destroy us. Oh, no. What? So what do we have? We have living stones stacked upon a cornerstone named Jesus, lifting up the body of Christ. Is Pastor and Jason, is Pastor Jason and Candace ruling over anybody? No, we're lifting you up. <laughs> Praise God. And others are doing the same. And together, what are we seeing God do? We're seeing God build his house with men and women. Praise God. Thank you, guys. Oh, my God. All right. Give these guys a round of applause. Oh, I think I can survive. Thank you. Yes. It worked out better in my mind. Part of the issue we have, I think, with this topic is we, we have a top-down mentality of leadership rather than a bottom-up. Jesus said, unless I wash your feet, unless I kneel down and, and serve you, and, and become the cornerstone upon the foundation of the church that he himself said he would build, you have no place in me. Do you get it now? They couldn't, they couldn't have a place and a part in him if they didn't do it the way that he wanted it to be done. And a lot of times what we, what we see in church, when we see abuses of, of leadership or where we see women who are muzzled or, or not enabled or empowered to lead, it's because of the insecurity sometimes and the misunderstanding of how God wants his church to be built from the ground up with the lives of people who have said, I'm here to sacrifice and lay down everything for the cause of the gospel, for the sake of the cross, for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
This is the living altar that we are laying our lives down upon. Isn't it a beautiful picture? Painful picture. (laughs) That's the picture of how God calls us to lead. And so today in closing, I just want to say this. If you're a man or woman in this house, we are for you. We love you. We want your life to be built up. It would be our joy for those of you that are new to serve you and to be a part of your story in some way in whatever capacity. And God calls you to this church, calls you to plug in and get get involved to serve, whether it's as somebody who stands at the door or somebody who helps with kids or somebody who who helps with worship, whatever it is, that you would understand that this is a, a high calling and a high privilege to lay down our lives for the Lamb of God who laid down his life for us. And for those of you that maybe are just, just need to be encouraged in that, let me just tell you, there is so much more that I could say about all of this today. But I've done my best to try to be thorough and hopefully be nuanced and hopefully be intentional with, with how we understand how God appoints leaders and what he calls and asks of them. If you are a leader in this house, your job is to do that, is to lay your life down on his altar, to lay your life down on the cornerstone of Jesus to not use the gifts and the callings that you've received from God to lord or exercise authority over, but to use what God has given you to serve. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at courageouschurch.com.